Good morning. Great to see you. And yeah, let me just start by explaining this new preaching series, what we're doing, why we're doing it uh, at this time. Um, It's uh, the book of Nehemiah, which is uh, a book that you may never have actually read, uh, particularly if you're one of those people who tries to read through the Bible year after year and you kind of, you know, just you get stuck. Um, And you're like, Nehemiah sounds like a Bible name. I guess that happens later on. Yeah, he's one of the last uh, characters uh, in the, the, um, the chronological order of the Old Testament. And so his book is one of the last, although um, it's not the last in the Old Testament in the actual order in your Bibles, just to confuse you uh, with that. Um, it describes part of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. So, And the story is that God had chosen a people, Israel, to be his people. He'd put them in a promised land. He'd given them a capital city of Jerusalem, and he put a temple. He got them to build a temple in the middle of that city, and that was where God was going to be. And from where God was in that temple, in that city, in that land, the plan was for the whole world to be blessed. As those people lived for God, and they glorified him, and they demonstrated his ways to the whole world. But it didn't work out that way. Instead, they did their own thing again and again and again. And so God, in, in his relationship with them, had to, had to try and stop them from doing that. He gave them warning after warning after warning, but they were just unfaithful. And so after centuries of warnings, he had to cast them out of the land. And he allowed for Jerusalem and for the temple to be destroyed. Now, after a time of rest for the land and repentance by his people, God invited them to return. And this happens in three movements, which you can read about in the book of Ezra and then in the book of Nehemiah. They were originally actually one book, but we've split them up for some reason. It wasn't my fault. Um, and so the first group is led by a guy called Zerubbabel, and they return almost as soon as they can, and they start to rebuild the temple. They start to, they start to worship God again on that site where he had been worshipped before. And then Ezra uh, leads another group and they finish the work of the temple and they're building the community and they're teaching God's word again. And then finally, Nehemiah comes to build or to rebuild the city's walls. And and by doing that, he wants to secure all the restorations that have happened and also enable people to live once again in the city and for it to become this vibrant place where God is known and displayed. So in other words, the story of Nehemiah is the story of what happens to God's people after a time of trauma and disrupted worship. And so we thought it might be appropriate uh, to look at what they did as we consider what we are to do. Now, we know that COVID isn't over and its effects aren't done. And in the same way, Nehemiah didn't think the exile was all finished. He wasn't like, right, God has totally drawn a line after all of that stuff and it's a whole new day. It didn't work like that. They were still working through what had happened and what was happening. And that's obviously the same for us uh, today, right here. But we feel that this is the time to look forward. This is the time for rebuilding. This is a time for action. And Nehemiah is a great book to read to be inspired about that. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the story uh, as it happened, apart from right here in the beginning, uh, where we're going to go to the very end, to the climax, the conclusion of the whole thing, and also next week. But after then, we'll actually take you all the way through the story. Um, So there are spoilers. Really sorry about that if this is a new story to you. Uh, But we wanted to start with these two moments uh, where I'm looking at this massive gathering of God's people today. And then as part of our all-age service next week, Dan's going to look at how people worked together in small groups. So we're going to read today uh, from Nehemiah chapter 12. They rebuilt the walls really quickly. That that happened so quickly, it's almost like less than half the book, and that's already done. 
And then they have a series of celebrations and worship and people coming back into the city and gathering together. And the last of these celebrations is in Nehemiah chapter 12, and it's the dedication of the rebuilt wall. And I'm going to read you the story, and uh, they are going to be walking around a city that you won't be familiar with, and so they're going to name some landmarks, and you'll be like, I don't know what that is. And uh, they're going to name a lot of people involved as well. And they may not necessarily be how those names are usually pronounced, but I'm just going to give it my best go. So, Nehemiah 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites, who really helped lead them in worship in all their places, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Natophathites and from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought up the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate. And after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah and Jeremiah and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph. And his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mei, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakam, Measha, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elianiah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maasijah, and Shemaiah, and Eliza, and Uzi, and Johanan, and Malkijah, and Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the sound of the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is God's word. And the question I want to ask today, and I want us to wrestle with today, is why did they do that? Why is that the highlight and the purpose of the whole story? Why is their response to what God has done to gather together? And for us now, why is it so important that we do that? Why did we gather together as soon as we could, when we could only have 50 people here, when we couldn't sing, uh, when we didn't have kids and youth work, when we have to wear face masks? Why, despite our online services being the best that we could do, and thanks to our amazing tech team, they were so much better than if those guys hadn't been here, but why did we only ever consider that to be second best to gathering in person? It wasn't just that everyone contributing to the camera and watching at home found that really hard. It wasn't simply like we're like, I'm not sure we like it all that much. There was something much more important going on. And I think it's really significant for us to assess that 
and consider that right now. Because we could just go back to doing all the things that we used to do in the ways we used to do. And many of us will have that tug, that sense of, I just want to go back to how it was. Or we could say, right, none of that old stuff, that was all the past. God's clearly wanted to stop all of it. No more Sunday gatherings. It's unhelpful. God's got new things for the church. We could do that as well. Well, what we believe is that God has been working out big changes in the church, in the whole world. And right here, it has been a season of that. Just as I've kind of watched uh, like, uh, through kind of Christian media and other places where I've just seen, wow, God is, people I know, gosh, God is changing so many things at the moment. Does that mean he wants everything to change? Well, we've started working out what some of that change looks like for us, and there's, there's more of that to come. But what I want to do today is show you that gatherings of God's people have huge significance in the Bible. And perhaps the main change for us regarding Sunday services is for us to just be more fully aware of what God wants to do with them. You might have a renewed appreciation uh, for them right now, but I want to do more than that today. I want you to, to see and understand what God wants to do when we gather together. And so I'm kind of working with two things here, some of which will be very familiar to many of you, but also something that might not be. I'm aware that others of you, you're just kind of getting used to being back here, or maybe this is the first time you've actually come into this building, into this church congregation before. I'm aware there's loads going on. So let's pray. Let's ask God to speak to us as we look at what he wants to do when we gather together. Lord Jesus, we just... We just... Want to, we want to obey you, Lord. We want to do what you want us to do. And we want to hear you. And so we ask that you give us ears to hear right now. You'd help me say the right words and, and for us to, to really know you and hear you and obey you and live for you. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is, is really do a, like an, a, an, a, an edited highlights of the history of uh, community and people gathering in the Bible. And we're going to go through it pretty fast, but hopefully there's going to be a cumulative force for you, which you will find helpful. So before God made anything, he existed in community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has always been one. One God in three persons. Their togetherness knows no limit. They have no lines where they say, that's far and no further. They are utterly united. And their love for one another and their delight in one another is beyond our comprehension. It is, a, it is something of God that we're going to get glimpses at, and today's going to help us with that, but it is ultimately way beyond what our brains can conceive of. And when God made us, he made us to be like him which is that he made us to share this love and this life that he has, Father, Son, and Spirit. They, he, wanted that to be shared with others, and that's us. And so he made us as creatures who exist in time and space so that we might come together at a time, in a place, and worship him and know him. He made us for many more things than that, but that was one of the reasons he made us. And so we see this then work itself out, firstly, in the Garden of Eden. 
That's the first place this happens. Now, just to say, uh, there's going to be a series of images come up, come up on the screen. I haven't chosen all of them because I really like all of them, necessarily, but they all have crowd scenes. And not all the art of this, these things do, but I, wanted, I found some that did, because that's what I want you to have a sense of uh, this morning. So just in case you, think you don't like some of the art later, and you're like, why on earth did you choose that? There's people there, and I want you to see that. There's obviously only two people in this one, but for this one, it's like, well, there are people in there, you know, covered at certain places and whatever. But there's also all those creatures. There is, there's a sense of a gathering there. The people that God made were to gather with him and to talk with him and to know him. But when sin enters the world, what happens? What does Genesis tell us about the consequences of sin? Adam and Eve hide from God. They're meant to be with him, but they go away from him. And then they argue with each other, and they are expelled from the garden, the gathering place. And so from then on, scattering becomes associated with judgment and with punishment again and again. So when Cain murders his brother Abel, part of his punishment is to become, Genesis 4 says, a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. When the people of Babel try to rival God by building this great tower in their own strength, Genesis 11 says that he dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Now, in contrast, when God starts his great rescue plan for humanity, he doesn't just choose people here, there, and everywhere. He starts with a family. And this family, is a, it is a community. It's, they are gathered together and they are referred to again and again as an assembly, as a company, as a congregation. And they are defined by gathering moments, such as their encounter with God at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 describes the scene. There's God at the top of the mountain and there's thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. And all the people, we're told, are at the bottom. Now, there's obviously a distance issue here that's, that's still the consequences of Eden, but they are all gathered to God together, and it's there that he constitutes them as his people. It's there that he gives them the law by which they are to live. It's, it's there that they receive teaching and instruction and become aware of God's truth. It's also there that um, they're told that they need to have several annual festivals at which they gather together. They're going to go into a land. It's a, you know, they're going to live in different parts of the land, but they must again and again gather, gather, gather. And these festivals were to be reminders of what God had already done with them and for them. And they weren't to do these things by themselves. They were to celebrate in community. Later on, Jerusalem is established as the capital city, like I said, and a temple is going to be built there, which is the place to go to to worship God. Because that's where he specially puts himself. And everyone goes to the same place. And they, everyone worships in the same way. So there's an equality there. You can't have people from one region or another saying like, oh, we're the special people. Oh, we do it this way. I can't believe you do it that way. No, they're all to come to the same place and worship God in the same way. And there are two key temple establishing moments. Um, and the first of them is King David brings the ark, which is this uh, special box that was constructed where God said, that's where I'm really going to be. And he brings it into the city. And then his son Solomon later on builds the entire temple and then dedicates it. And there is a moment where it begins to be used by God. Neither of these moments are private ceremonies. Neither of these are VIP events that a select few get invited to. Everyone is told, 
Come together. Come and see what's going to happen. And they have a shared encounter with God. And they have a sense of, um, this is how holy he is. We've kind of seen his glory fall. We've all seen it. Unsurprisingly, many of the Psalms are intended for gathered worship, and they celebrate encounters with God in those gatherings. So Psalm 35, 18 says, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Psalm 149, verse 1 says, praise the Lord. We're used to this in our times of worship. It's a classic worship leader starting verse because it's so good. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. It's interesting, isn't it? We often hear those things, those moments, don't we? Praise the Lord, and we think, yes, sing a new song. I will sing a new song. But Psalm 149 is saying, together, together we're to sing. Together we're to praise. That is God's intention. It's Israel's failure to honor God by worshiping him correctly in the temple that is one of the main reasons why they are expelled from the land. Because, of course, that's how he punishes them when it all becomes too much, when they're just so faithless. They are, they're going after other gods. That's really wrong. They are allowing injustice to flourish. That's really wrong. But they are also not worshipping God together as they should. And now we're starting to get close to our scene in Nehemiah because what God does is, as I've said, he allows the city to be destroyed and the temple to be destroyed. And all the things they thought were so important, but they'd kind of forgotten the reason they were really important, they're all gone. And they are dragged out of the land. But even as God had warned them that this would happen, and even as it was happening, God was also saying to them, this is not how it ends. What am I going to do? I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to bring you back together happens in the, the prophets say this again and again and again if you've been uh, working through Ezekiel recently and are reading God's word together and you've been like what is going on with this book it's a really hard book but one of the key things that happens is that God leaves the temple at the start and he returns to the temple at the end and he says in that returning I'm bringing people back to be with me now for decades this seemed like an impossible dream how's this ever going to happen well, God made it happen And that is why it's such a big deal in Nehemiah that the people are gathering again in Jerusalem to worship God. It's not just like, where should we go? Where would be nice? You know, when you choose a holiday, almost certainly you're like, where would I like to go? That is, this isn't just, where should we go? No, it must be here because this is the place God has called them to gather together. And for them to do that in Jerusalem, once again, is a sign of his favor. It's a sign of his faithfulness. And it's a sign of him restoring them to their original purpose. And part of that purpose is that that joyful celebration is heard far and wide. So they are brought in that a sound might go out from them. Centuries later, when Jesus comes to the earth, what happens? Does Jesus just go individually here, there? No, he draws a crowd, doesn't he? And then he builds a community. His death and resurrection are not just simply the way for you to be saved. It's not just about you and your life being changed. Because what Jesus is doing is he is rescuing and remaking the people of God. He lives that in himself, firstly. So, for example, why does he go into the wilderness to be tempted? Because that's what happened to the whole people of Israel. They failed. He succeeded. 
that he, was, he, he stayed faithful when they didn't. And he lives a load of those things out. But then he starts to gather. And what does he gather? He gathers 12 men. Why does he do that? Because Israel, the family of Israel, started with 12 men and God. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's like, well, I'm God, and you're the 12 guys. We are restarting this project of a people who belong to God. By the time Jesus has died and then resurrected and then ascended to heaven, we're told in Acts 1 that there is a company of about 120 people. They have been formed together. They identify with one another. And Jesus tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit to fill them. They know from their history and they know from being with him, what do you do if Jesus says, wait, I'm going to come and meet with you by the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's the Holy Spirit. So he can, you know, he can meet with everyone everywhere. In fact, we believe right now there are churches gathering all around the world and we believe the Holy Spirit is meeting with people in all those different places. So he can, do, he can go wherever he likes. But what happens? Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. He could have been given anywhere to anyone in any way. It is not an accident or coincidence that he is given to a gathered community. What happens when he comes? They go outside They declare the praises of God. And there are people, we're told, there from every nation under heaven. And those people are added to that community. That's how this this section of Acts ends. It says, and they were added to them, about 3,000 people. All of these people are brought into a relationship with God, but with one another. And, And that moment in itself is a moment of reversing the curse. In Babel, people rebelled and so were sent all over the world. At Pentecost, despite their ongoing rebellion, God brings them back in. Acts records that this new community meets in the temple and in one another's homes. They do both these things again and again and again. They have big gatherings and smaller gatherings. And yes, they are now scattered But it's a new day. So this isn't a scattering of punishment. This is a scattering so that all the world might hear and be gathered in. Wherever the apostles go, yes, they talk to individuals, but they build churches. They found gatherings, people who meet together. And so in the New Testament, we see that so many of the blessings that God had shown in the Old Testament gatherings are now being experienced in a new way. In these churches. And this is one of the great changes because, yes, at one point they were just gathered in at Jerusalem. Now, every city in the world, they're starting to meet in. They're starting to gather together. They even make it all the way up to Edinburgh. And churches are established here eventually. And so we're not going to Jerusalem, but we are gathering together and meeting with God. And as we do so, we believe that God does so many good things through this. And we try to make those happen here at King's. Maybe, uh, as Joe was saying, maybe you're a new student here today. You've just come into a new city and you're like, I don't know anyone. I'm going to meet some people next week and who knows what they'll be like. But here, there's a family for you to join and be part of who want you to come and be with us and to connect and for us to help you. 
maybe just, we're just in a meeting and someone says something about you and you're like, they don't even know me, but God's told them something about me. And you're encouraged. Maybe you bring someone along and that someone suddenly realizes that although you were the only Christian they'd met before, you're not the only one. Wow, there's a whole bunch of them here together. And actually, maybe what I've heard about the church isn't quite true because I'm suddenly seeing something that I didn't realize existed and it's wonderful. Your children hear good things about Jesus from people other than you, which is so helpful for them. You are served by people whose names you don't know. And who might not even know you, but they're here to help. You're taught things about God and his word that you didn't know or you perhaps wouldn't have chosen to listen to. You meet with people who are really different to you. And they might be from the other side of the world or just the other end of a personality scale. But because they are different and yet brought together, we, we learn from each other. And we see more, we understand more of Jesus and his purposes because of that. You learn to sing in harmony even if it's not necessarily the songs or the key you would have chosen. And for all these things that you experience and benefit from, so others do so because you're here doing these things as well. It's part of the economy of God that as he blesses us individually, he blesses us together. And you are blessed and you bless others. And if I can put it like this, these things just won't happen if you go for Sunday brunch with friends instead. They, they won't happen if your kids are like, no, I want us to go to this thing instead, and you say, okay. They won't happen if you only come once in a while. They, they can't happen, and you know this if you're watching online. You're like, I'm getting a bit of this, I'm not getting all of it, and I know, and... And we know that there are, you know, there's a really obvious reason why not everyone's able to come at the moment. And so if you, you have symptoms, you're tested, you realize it, then yeah, you need to stay at home, you need to do that because it's part of how you love and care for others that we don't bring it here. So I know there are people here for that reason, not here for that reason. I know there are people who have shift work and it's really hard. And you're like, I don't get to choose these rotors. I know that elsewhere in the world, there are believers who really cannot gather because it is a threat to their life. But do you know what? Those believers are never like, well, this is all great. They're like, this is a problem to be solved. We're going to do it in the middle of the night if we need to. We're going to pray that God would change this situation so that we can gather together. But there's more at stake than all of this. There's more. God has more reason than he's, this is just a really good way of blessing you and you blessing others. He's got something else that he wants to do in this and with this. See, when the people in the New Testament realized what God was doing, they realized that there was something happening beyond even just all the benefits of gathering together, all the lovely things they enjoyed when they met with one another. Something far greater was going on. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 verse 6 that God has raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Paul uses a really interesting past tense there. He says, that's what God has done. He's seated us in the heavenly places. 
And you might be like, no, no, very much seated in an earthly place right now. But actually what the revelation of what God has done through his spirit and God's son is that we are now, if we belong to God, seated in heavenly places. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that there's something happening to the followers of Jesus, particularly when they're gathered together, that is greater than when God met with Israel on Mount Sinai. Hebrews 12 says, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, he's writing to people who are scattered all over the place, who are are nowhere near Mount Zion, which is the mountain in Jerusalem. They're nowhere near there. But he he says, you have come to this, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. He's saying, it's complex language, I appreciate that, there's a lot going on there, but what he is saying is that when you are saved, when the Holy Spirit fills you, and when you gather together, you are coming to a spiritual reality, not just a physical reality. And the spiritual benefits you get are great, but they are not the whole picture. The whole picture is something going on far greater than we understand. It is the fulfillment of God's eternal intention for us that we be united with him and with one another just as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are one true gathering. The night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed four times that his people would be one even as the Father and Son are one. That can't just happen sentimentally. That can't happen unless we are gathered together. And what do we see then in Revelation when we're shown a glimpse of the future and and the, the, the reality to which all of history is moving? Revelation 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. They're all there. They're all there in the same place. And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The climax of history, like the climax of Nehemiah's story, is not loads of isolated individuals meeting with God here, there, and everywhere. It is a gathering. Is the people of God together, experiencing the triune life of God together. And so gathering together isn't just about what you get out of it or even how you can benefit others by coming along. Those are good things, but it is about something much more than that. It is a prophetic demonstration of the purposes of God for all of history. This is where history is heading, to be a final and forever gathering of the people of God united with him as he has always been united with himself in love. This is why it's really important that when we talk about our Sunday services, what might they achieve? What can we do with them? What should we do? And this is a time for having those kind of discussions about everything. But if we're just like, how good are they at? Evangelism. How good are they at disciple making? How good are they at spiritual gifts? How good are they at releasing service? All of those things I want to happen. But if that's what we limit our discussions to, we miss the ultimate purpose of these gatherings. There is a reason that transcends all of this, that they are a sign to the world of God's purpose for all people.
Nehemiah reports that the sound of the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. We join in with that sound. We echo it. We anticipate it. And we declare it to our city that there is a great noise of heaven that is soon to come to earth. Now, over the rest of this preaching series, we will look at some of the other important things that God calls his people to do. Sundays really aren't the only time of the week that you should be meeting with God and serving him and living for him. Of course not. But we wanted to highlight the importance of gathering right now, right here at the start of this new season, because it's so significant and it's an opportunity for us to understand it correctly and not just for the reasons that feel obvious to each one of us. So let's gather, let's come together, and let's do so again and again and again in anticipation of when we're going to do it forever in glory.